everyone, welcome to How To Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. My name is Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we are going to talk about the Green Knight. Now, we did talk a little bit about the preview of the Green Knight, but both Matt and I sat down and watched the movie, and we're going to talk about the movie in its entirety and what we thought about it and what you can expect if you go and watch it, if you haven't watched it already. And uh, spoiler alert, we will talk about things. If you haven't seen it, we will talk about details of the movie. So if you're somebody who doesn't like to know things going in, stop listening now, go watch the movie, and then come back and join our conversation. There you go. Now, we have watched this from two different perspectives. So I read The Green Knight sometime in my past, probably in school, and then it's just not something that came back up on my radar. And I was tempted to watch it before, or rather read it before watching the movie, but made the conscious decision not to, so that I could kind of get an idea of what the target audience was expected to see, which is the average person maybe had read it in school once and then has promptly forgotten about it. And I think that's what most people expect, or rather the producers expected the average viewer to see. Now, I know you did the opposite, though. You went and reread it before you watched it, right? That's right. I, I reread it before I watch it. I, my, my background is in English, as, as I've mentioned before. Um, so, and I did a lot of focus on medieval and, and Renaissance English when I was in college. So this sort of falls into my wheelhouse of, of what I'm prepared to analyze going into, going into watching a movie like this. So yes, I went, I found a copy of it. I I didn't go digging through my books. I'm sure I have a copy of it here somewhere. I probably have the uh, Tolkien copy of it somewhere because that's sort of the almost a definitive version of this story. It was a translation um, done by J.R. Tolkien. He he wrote it all out originally in middle english or or even old, maybe even old english i'm not 100 sure off the top of my head and then translated it afterwards i found a copy online just read through it quick uh by a w a nielsen uh this was for uh cambridge in 1999 so a little newer translation than than the tolkien one and i have every interest actually to go back and read it in fact it says something about the movie that Watching it made me want to reread the the actual source material, but I haven't yet, specifically so that I don't taint my current review. And then after I'm done here, I will definitely go back and reread the the poem. So I guess initial thoughts to get out of the way, like what did you think of this movie? Because I really enjoyed it. I was thoroughly impressed. Granted, I expected to be impressed by the preview. I really enjoyed it as well. Uh, watching it, I almost did almost a while I didn't comment on it while I was watching it, I, I found other friends who sort of did live comments when they watched it. And and a lot of them really didn't like it. They, they really thought it was horrible. Hmm. And I can, I can see why some people would, would not like it at all. But that being said, I, I thought it was, I thought it was darn near brilliant. It, it, touched on a lot of things correctly it did have its issues but overall it it really sort of captured the feel of it really well 
It did. And it, it hit those beats that we were talking about in the trailer react in that it definitely threw back to some of that old school pre D and D mythology regard of magic. Like what is magic? How does it interact? And it definitely had that medieval vibe and it actually had a, a surprisingly large number of a fairly medievally reasonable elements. But I do want to acknowledge that it's not a historically accurate film, but it's also a fairy tale. And I went in not expecting it to be anything historically accurate. And so I don't know if that might be me setting myself up for success, but it's a definitely a medieval themed fairy tale. And so in that, it took lots of liberties with material culture that didn't bother me. And I, that's, that's one thing that really helped watching the movie. And a lot of the details within the material culture were actually pulled straight from the original poem. Mm -hmm. While it may not have aesthetically looked like a perfectly medieval outfit or, or setting, they were able to pull that, that item. So one of the things we'll talk about, first spoiler alert, all the Knights of the Round Tables wore these big chains that had a pendant on them with a pentacle on it. And and I can hear I can hear people saying, "Oh, you know, nice round table. Why was Arthur? Were they trying to do a like a like a pagan thing? Was it a witchcraft thing?" And if you read the poem, that's actually an an item that is in the original poem, and it talks about how Arthur and all his knights wore pentagrams symbols of the five truths that Solomon created and represents at this point, they talk about the five virtues of knighthood and those points, those five stars. So the pentagram hasn't always been associated with paganism or witchcraft or things like that. It, it actually is a very early Christian symbol. So using it in this context and, and pulling it straight from the poem, that's one of those details. That's like, I'm like, that was a fantastic detail. Yeah. And it does evoke that sense of delivery color and the chain of fealty and all these sort of vaguely either historical or allegorical or just apocryphal symbols of knighthood and, and things like that were were brought in in such a way that they none, not a single one of them stood out to be to me like un out of place. They were all very, they all had a home in the world that was built in this movie. There were a lot of deliberate choices made for this movie that worked very very well. There are some that didn't that didn't work so well, and I actually found a an article from Vogue back in. Is August of 2021 before the movie came out, and it was an interview with the costume designer. I'm very sorry. I am going to butcher your name if you hear this. You probably won't because you're a big time costume designer. But if you do, I'm very sorry. It's Malgosia Terzanska. I mean, you did better than I probably would. So. <laughs> she made some very interesting costume designs that 
some of them were taken from inspiration of medieval artwork. Some of them were her own inspiration. But they had meaning. The costumes, all almost all the costumes had meaning behind them. I thought the crowns were amazing. So they were designed to look like, you know, medieval, you know, and Byzantine icons where they have that huge halo that comes around the back. So when the light catches it, these figures look like they have that halo above that. It would have reminded me of was a nice, it was kind of blending the worlds between what was actual physical artifacts and what we see in illumination and art. You know, we see these, these pictures, well, they're paintings or drawings that, you know, invoke things like saints and put halos, not even always on saints, just important figures in a drawing to, to draw your eye and, and give a sense of importance. And whether or not these were, sometimes they could have been representations of physical headgear, and some of it was clearly meant to be artistic. I thought it was really nice the way they pulled those elements in and created a real tangible representation of some things that, again, you know, talking about a fairy tale, there's there's magic and there's art and there's show to it. They gave that a real physical presence. And so it jumped off the page, not just the physical person in the illumination, but some of the artistry and the symbolism that was meant to be put in there in addition to the material culture was also brought in. I, I thought it was actually really well done. And I, I can say, I really want uh, Gwen's cloak. I thought that cloak was fantastic. Isn't it? You were talking about looking up the... So I tried to to look up as few articles as possible. Again, I wanted to go in. My perspective is the, the Joe Schmo who didn't look deeper into the movie and just watched it, right? But I did see some headline somewhere that said that someone's fingerprint was used as the... There's like a texture to his that that mustard cloak. And then you see like a spiral design that runs all the way through it that supposedly it's someone, it's like either the costume designer or the costume designer's family, their fingerprint of some sort is actually, that is the pattern in that cloak, from what I understood. Yes, that is, that, and that's, that's right. I'm trying to f- see if I can find it because they talk in the article in Vogue I was listening to, because she talks about how that was part of it. Yes, it, it's, I, it might be Dev tell the guy the guy who played Wayne it may be his that would make sense too yeah but that was one of those things that you couldn't unsee so I had seen the preview and I'd noticed that his cloak had a texture and it didn't didn't necessarily mean anything and then somehow I had read about that before I watched the movie and then once I watched the movie there was you know especially very early in the film there's a he throws the cloak on while he's on horseback and he's riding back into town or back into the castle from the brothel and there's like a really good like profile of him and the and the cloak is draped around him and the horse and you can see it and you're like wow that is totally a fingerprint and it's just really cool doubly so that you know i see fingerprints fairly frequently sometimes and so like to be able to like go oh wow that is so clearly a fingerprint was pretty cool so looking at it finding it in the article it 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 wasn't actually somebody's thumbprint it just it does have a pattern reminiscent of a of a giant thumbprint on it oh they found and used a sort of one of the driving themes behind this movie was free will. You know, does did did Gwen actually have a choice to become great or not? You know, so having that thumbprint on his back is like almost like somebody's pushing him constantly somewhere in control of him. 
but the um it's it, the fabric and they found it they actually dyed it with with gorse which is a a, a native irish plant which is in, invasive so it's it's a they hand dyed it for the film to get that right yellow and it was a striking yellow it really it really stood out from everything else in the film and yeah there were still lots of grays and browns and things like that in the film but i think that was actually done specifically to do things like make his cloak stand out more i felt that way a lot too especially in in the throne room with the the round table and with now one thing to be pointed out like this is an arthurian tale we get that but they never actually call him the king arthur they never say the word arthur at least i and i was looking for it and i didn't catch it because they did things they hedged up like they called him they just addressed him as king and they were knights and the table was round but like they really downplayed a lot of the Arthur parts of it, and I, I, that struck me as intentional in the same way that they made the knights themselves and the king himself very drab, blend in with the stone of the surrounding area. That way, when there's that scene where the green knight faces off against uh, Gwen, and he's got this very distinct yellow, and the, the knight is made of a very distinct green, and they both really stand out and everyone else kind of blends into the background and I it pulled the spotlight off of the characters that are familiar to people and it made you notice this otherwise obscure Arthurian tale and now he is clearly the the person that matters in the story and you didn't get bogged down with people thinking about all the other times they've seen Arthur portrayed he's never even mentioned well that that goes back to the original poem and it's actually one of the like i said it's one of those it's one of those details that they pulled from the poem if you watch the movie Gwen's the only character referred to by name at all no one else is referred to by any name so and if you look at the poem when they speak to each other only Gwen is named in the poem it does talk about how arthur you know, Guinevere and Arthur were there and all the knights were there and things like that. But once he actually gets into the actual story of, of you know, and gets Gwen involved, and when they actually talk to him, Gwen is the only name mentioned aloud by any speaker throughout the poem. So, again, that was a very interesting um, detail. Lots of, I mean, they did a lot of research on, on this for de- to get details like that in there. Absolutely. It sounds like someone was very familiar with the source material. And even not having reread it, you definitely got the sense that they knew what they were talking about. In that sometimes you watch a movie and it's like, oh, based on a real story, and then everything kind of goes a little wonky and some writer had to got fired and passed the script off to another writer who started rewriting it on page seventy four and it gets disjointed. This movie was very coherent in that they knew exactly what was going on. I mean, more or less to the, to the extent that you can in a, in a massive movie like this, but it was very clear that they knew what they were getting into, that they were following a, they were following a very non-traditional story in that the original Arthurian legend, especially hearkening back to non-modern and non-recent modern storytelling devices. It's a very, it's a very alien story format like it's very different 
I wouldn't use the term coherent um, because there are times during this movie where it got it got weird. It got that, like that really felt weird. It felt like it was supposed to though. It, it yeah, I think I think that's why I think deliberate is the right word. Everything they did okay. in this movie, I accept that was deliberate. Every choice they made was deliberate. There wasn't. I don't think there was any point where there's like, you know, some movies they're just like, ah, we're gonna run the camera, see what happens. Yeah, nothing was arbitrary at at all. But okay, I get what you mean by that. Yeah, deliberate is probably a much better way of putting it, because it was clear that everybody, everything had a purpose, but that doesn't necessarily mean mean that it made sense. And I at sometimes I don't think it was supposed to make sense. And that that kind of goes towards my my sense of like really enjoying the old school magic, in that. Magic is, isn't something that you can, like, I'm going to go read a book and then I can cast a fireball. It's like magic is, is otherworldly. It's scary. It's like a force of nature. It, it doesn't, it, it has, doesn't have malice, but it, it definitely has no regard for you as a person specifically. Like it's very, it's very much follows its own agenda. And so it's this, it's this massive presence, uncontrollable, unknowable. And you definitely get that feeling throughout this film that they are fighting against forces that are well beyond anyone's ability to comprehend, and they're just hoping to get through it alive. It's like a, it's like sailing through a, a hurricane in a in a respect. Yeah, I I agree with that. So I can hear a lot of people now who have watched it, and they're like, "But they added so many things to it, like." Yeah, in the original poem, it doesn't talk about the band, you know, the bandits. I think they called them raiders in the movie or something like that. We need to talk about that because there was a moment wherein I laughed right out loud because of these bandits. So I just I just need to put a pin in this before I forget it. So in the movie, and I know we're not going through it chronologically, and that's okay because the movie, as we said, is maybe deliberate, but it's not necessarily makes a lot of sense. So we can jump around in it without losing too much. So there's a point at which he decides to go off on his quest, and he's knight, he's or he's not quite a knight yet, because he's trying to, to earn his spurs, more or less, and prove himself. And he, But he's, you know, armored up, he's got a horse, and he goes out and he has, like, he rides out into the countryside, and then he camps out one night. And he's, like, close enough to home, to what we, we know as Camelot, and you can, like, see it on the horizon. And I'm thinking to myself, and again, I, I, I wish that I had, like, live-tweeted it, because I, I thought to myself, like, Man, he's, I know it's a hero tale, and he's, like, on his own solo journey, but, like, what if he gets waylaid by bandits? It's just him. And then, <laughs> and then he, of course, later on in the film, he literally gets waylaid and tied up by bandits. <laughs> and I just started laughing, because it was, like, uh, I don't know, it was just so, the fact that it happened like that in my head was just, I very much enjoyed that moment in the film. Where he is literally like on his own, and sure he's got a sword and he's got a male shirt, but there's six of them or, or four of them, or whatever, and so he gets tied up and robbed. <laughs> yeah, it it I could I could hear people grumbling about that scene while I watched it. I could see people not liking that happening to him because I, but at the same time, like like you said, it's like these are dangerous times. He was perceived as somebody who had money. Bandits. Yeah, yeah, did have money. I, and, you know, their bandits are out there and, and they, they took advantage of him because he was out there on his own. Mm -hmm. And even a night, you know, three people, 
two of them with bows and one of them with a, with a knife on him. You know, it's like even though even the best knight in the world isn't going to be able to do anything about that right then. You know, they'll take down your horse, and if you if you are lucky enough not to get trapped under your horse, you you're still gonna. And he was, wasn't wearing a helm or a closed helm. He didn't have plate on. He was very vulnerable to the type of ambush that was designed to deal with someone who was equipped like he was. I mean, in the scene, he he talks to one of the guys early. Like, there's this peasant running around in a in a the field where a battle happened and he's talking to Gawain and he tells him what direction to go to lead him into this trap. But I mean, this bandit scouted ahead of time. He knew exactly what is, he was capable of. He knew exactly how he was armed and armed. And so it wasn't unreasonable that he would got, would have gotten waylaid like that. And another thing that I noticed is that Gawain made no attempt to fight them. And that's very much what happened through the majority of this film in that he tended to run away from his problems almost every time he was confronted by them. And that was one of the things that, I, I in the very end, he finally faced his, his problem in that I mean, every one of his challenges, and I don't know if this was the same in the, in the poem or not, but he very much wasn't, he was only brave when it was easy. So he was brave when he was surrounded by all the other knights in the room at the beginning of the movie. And he was, he was only really, he showed, he had a lot of trepidation, and he second-guessed himself constantly, and he talked himself out of doing heroic things. A couple times, he like he did things that were clearly required courage, but he, now he wasn't a coward, but he was very much a hesitant hero in this. Well, and throughout the movie, they, you know, they they play up a lot of how he is not knight-like at all. He really isn't. And if I remember from a long... I mean, remembering a long time ago, I, I thought Gawain was a, a purer character in the poem than he was... I mean, the movie opens up with him like talking to his favorite hooker right, after a night of, of carousing. So I, I feel like he was a, he was much more... He was, he, I guess he lower class in that like he wasn't... Then I remember him from the poem being like a knight who really wanted to be a knight, so he showed off how knightly he could be, but he was just like never got the chance to to do the heroic deed of arm thing. And in this one, it was less of that and more of him actually being kind of a very unknightly person that had knighthood or knightly experiences thrust upon him. And that plays into that sort of hero's journey trope that we were talking about earlier is this transformation of from good to great and there's that there's that question you know his his lover there before he leaves on his quest asks you know ask him it's like you know why are you know why are you basically why are you doing this and it's like to be great and he's like why do men he's like why do men always want to be great why can't they just be good and that's a question that haunts him and he, he's constantly talking about this it's like there's that old saying you know you know some men are born great born to greatness some men achieve greatness and some men have greatness thrust upon him and they're they're definitely going for that thrust upon him aspect of it it's like he doesn't he doesn't really want to do this but everyone's manipulating him to control his fate to make him make him be something more than what he thinks he is true and to be fair he doesn't have an answer to that question like when they're having that scene and she's 
she's effectively asking him to stay and she's saying look like you only patron me for a reason like we like each other why don't we go and be together and he pretty much says no i can't because i have to go off and do night stuff and he's like and she asks and like you said she asks why do you why and he doesn't have an answer like he doesn't he doesn't even know why he needs to go do this except that circumstances require it effectively so i also know a lot of people who complain about because they added things to the movie that weren't really part of the movie or part of the poem like i said about the the the, the raiders they added that one in um they added the ghost house part in they added like the giants and the fox still not quite sure what the fox is was all about because they 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 do talk about a fox in the poem but not in the way they used it in the movie i, I sort of took it as there was this constant sort of babysitter cam by his mother right yeah and I don't know what her motivation was. And that's something, maybe if we spin back around and, and go through the, the movie in order, we can address. I'm not entirely certain what her motivation was. Well, Gwen's mother is Morgan Le Fay, uh, okay. Arthur's, Arthur's sister. Or half. Right. Um, and her, her motivation was basically to get her son up to speed. Getting, um to to get greatness on her son because great that would reflect on her that would that would that would you know she wasn't living the the life of the princess type thing you know Gwen being Arthur's nephew was his direct heir because he did not have a son but what I I guess I don't I never kind of got the connection to how could she have like she orchestrated the green knight's arrival by doing the spell but how could she have known that he, of all the knights, would have taken the challenge and then gone on this quest. There was nothing about... It wasn't that a green knight issued a challenge against him directly. I mean, Gawain, you know, did it, but, I mean, that was kind of a... That was kind of a gamble on her part. That I, from, what I, from what I took from the movie is, is she manipulated him to, to accept it. Okay. I'm a, I must have missed that part. I don't... Because she wasn't even present in the, in the throne room because she was off doing the spell. But I, from from what I from what I took from this was she was manipulated. She was the pulling every string on that one. She manipulated her son into accepting the challenge. She manipulated the other knights to not accepting the challenge because all the great knights were there. Why didn't Ors or Lancelot or somebody jump jump up to that one? Right. That's a it's a good question because he didn't. It's not like he jumped up first and was super impetuous and didn't give them a chance to like everyone stood there like quiet like uh uh no arthur was like you're gonna do it and then of course like you said like you're about sorry i didn't mean to cut you off but yeah arthur was like i guess i'll have to do it even though i'm old infirm and gonna die and then that's only when gawain stepped up and so it's interesting that the you know there was nothing inherent in the spell that seemed to indicate that she took the courage from the other knights or or cowed them into inaction and I, I i can see where you're saying like maybe she had some influence but i didn't see it on screen and that that did confuse me likewise like i mean he really mucked up the challenge in in that he chopped that guy's head off well, not realizing 
they kept telling him. Even Gwenver's like, it's only a game. Right. And then he goes off. But then that, that's another thing. Like, if his mom wanted him to just go on some cool quest and get a neat scar on his shoulder or something, like, she de- she definitely rolled the, the dice on him doing something completely crazy, which is what he did. Was you know, But granted, to his... So, I'm of two minds. Like, I, I, I feel two simultaneous things. So, let's give the the listeners context. The Green Knight appears in and issues a challenge, and the challenge is that any blow you give me, I will return in a year's time. And so, pretty much, you punch me, I punch you, that kind of thing. And so, he's a big tree dude. Like, he's obviously not a normal person. He's literally got branches on him. He's not the Green Knight in that he's just some guy wearing green clothes. He is literally made of trees. So that should be, in my head, a clue that he's probably not going to operate like a normal everyday person. Yeah. And so in one respect, like, I think Gawain is justified in assuming that if he chopped this guy's head off, then he would not be around to return the blow. Like, that's that seems reasonable. That most people don't come up from come back from having their head chopped off, but at the same time, he's also a magic tree guy, and <laughs> so bets should kind of be off on what you can or can't expect from what happens here. So I, I really, sh- I hold two conflicting opinions of that entire decision to chop his head off. I find it very interesting how, throughout time, the Green Knight has become this fantastical monstrous creature because you know in the original poem it, he was just a guy dressed all in green who he was, he was who was really tall he was like basically a giant or, or, or a demi-giant so i find it interesting how we they've had to make in this movie but even before this movie in, in different retellings of it they've had to make him more fantastical and more monstrous for us to believe that he could just pick up his head and walk away with it. But I almost think it's better in the original telling where he's just some guy in a green surcoat because then the decision Gawain makes to just, like, overplay the game doesn't come off as so big a mistake. So when he's this giant tree monster, yeah, it makes more sense that he picks up his own head, but it also means that Gawain's motivation to overplay the game, i.e., if you're dead, you can't respond to any blow. Because there's always something to be said for, okay, who's to say he's honorable enough to respond to his blow in kind? So say we get in a sword fight, swing, swing, swing. I cut him on the leg. Who's to say he's not going to come back with his gigantic tree axe and chop my whole leg off? Or just kill me anyway, right? So there's doubt, reasonable doubt, as to whether or not this person is going to do what he says he's going to do, especially if you have to sit there and stand still and take whatever he delivers to you. But then to say, okay, well, you can't you can't deliver a an unreasonable reblow if you're dead, is okay when he's just some guy, maybe just a tall guy. Like tall guys without heads are just as dead as short guys without heads. But again, like it still bothers me that like weird magic tree man, when you chop his head off, like it's not. You should only be so surprised when he picks it up and laughs at you, right? Because he's a, he's a giant monstrous magical tree guy. Yeah, I, I guess like, the, the chopping the head off is sort of, seems to be like one of the universal ways to end anything, you know? So looking to the, the original poem again, you know, we talked about how in the movie they, they said, you know, basically it's like it's only a game, it's only a game. They did the same thing in the poem. 
uh, Arthur pulls him aside and he's like, uh, he's like, take care, cousin, quoth the king, that thou give him a cut, and if thou handled him properly, I ready believe that thou shalt endure the blow which he shall give after. So basically, even in the poem, Arthur's like, don't go all out on him. Just, you know, give him a little paper cut, and that's what he's going to give you later. But then again, in the poem, wasn't he much more of a, like, striving desperately to prove himself and less of the reluctant hero? Am I wrong in that estimation? No, you're correct. In, in, he was much more heroic in the poem. You know, he, he was young. He wanted to earn his... In the poem, I, you know, looking through it quick, I, I can't tell if he was already knighted or if he was wanting to be knighted yet. I think he may have been the youngest knight. He was the he he didn't really have money exploits behind him, but he was a knight. But yeah, yeah, he was looking for stories. He was looking for for stories to prove himself and be like, you know, I'm just as I'm just as cool as Lancelot over there. So I'm gonna. So. But yeah, the movie they definitely played up the more of the reluctant hero because I mean. It... It really, I, I, I can understand why people wouldn't like it because they're like, well, I want my heroic, my heroic roundtable night. But at the same time, it's like, you don't get much character development over the movie if he's walking around saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a badass and I'm going to prove it. So, and, and it doesn't make sense for what happens later either. I think he's also much more relatable in that he's just some flawed guy who's thrust into some in extraordinary circumstances in some ways against against his better judgment because he's he he's not even he only does it because he feels that he has to and you know there's a lot of people who can definitely relate to having to deal with situations that they don't want to be in because they have some sense of obligation or they get in over their head or you know they get swept up in situations and i i do see that as being a more relatable character to him Maybe not necessarily, possibly any audience, but definitely a modern audience. Getting in over your head is a perfect sort of way to get into the next segment of it, which is is the uh, <laughs> the ghost house, basically. So yeah. I liked that scene a lot. I thought it was it was amazingly well done. She, the 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 actress who played her is from Marvel's Falcon and Winter Soldier fame. She plays the head of the uh, the Rebel Brigade, Erin Kellyman. So she was, she made her big breakout in the in the uh, Disney Plus Marvel, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, playing the the head of this sort of underground um, super soldier people. So it was interesting to see her in something else. But yeah, so she plays uh, the ghost of Saint Winifred Bridget. Winifred. Winifred, yeah. Now she was. Th- was this one of? The ones, so if I recall correctly in the poem, it was kind of like, so it was really detailed about the scene we just went on at length about with the chopping off the head and the green knight and the challenge and the magic and all that. And then it's kind of like, and then Gawain goes off and does cool things and then they get to the end. And this is the, they recount, don't they recount the house with the Lord and the lady in great detail, but not this? Isn't this one of the ones where they kind of had their own artistic license or was this well detailed in the? This was, well. this is not in the poem at all this is something they they added to the poem basically as a plot pillar (laughs) i mean i like it because the if you think about it there was if he had a lot of trials 
the movie did well with pacing the fact that they only you know you can only make so much time out of the dinner scene and you can only make so much time out of his out of his final confrontation with the green knight which honestly with with the flash sorry not really flashback but the montage at the end was already you know really long they they it was a good way to fill in the middle of the movie and i actually really liked this scene almost better than i did the one with the lord in that it was really fun to sort of have i mean first of all like she's a ghost right and how often do you meet ghosts in your everyday life and so when he's like he reaches out to like poke her to see if she's will real and she's like what don't touch me he's like oh uh sorry like <laughs> that was funny but like the idea that you you go to sleep in this bed that's empty and you wake up and then there's a skeleton in it and all these sort of really things that kind of would give you emotional vertigo because again magic doesn't like you or hate you magic is indifferent towards you and things just happen the way they do and you hope you survive and that scene i think felt really much it was the first scene that, that really started to introduce this idea that this is not just a normal quest, but this is a quest where he's going to have to en uh, endure the capriciousness of a magical, scary, dark magical universe that uh, he's going to have to triumph through. And this was, I think, the first scene that really drove home that this isn't just dealing with bandits and this cosmic game, but like there's going to be some trippy stuff. and it kind of it set the tone for the middle of the movie in a really good way in that a lot of movies struggle in their second act, right? And this one really, it was a great subtle shift from a fairly normal mundane universe to he is now out there in the dark fantasy fairy tale universe and will he or will he not come back from that alive, unscathed, unchanged, better, worse? It in, injected a whole lot of what I felt to be really reasonable apprehension like i was like how is he going to get through what is definitely coming at him next and I, this scene did that for me i liked it a whole lot and i think it plays into that idea that there is more at work in the world than what he ever imagined or even wanted it, it again plays into that you know you have to do this good thing for me he's like you know basically you don't have a choice you have to do this for me. Right. And it harkens back to idea like old school concepts of hospitality. Like he just because he didn't know that the house was occupied, he benefited from respite in her in her lodging. And he'd had a legitimate obligation to help her in kind because he didn't offer her anything for this hospitality. And hospitality was incredibly important in a medieval context. So that felt really genuine to me. Again, it had that very strong hard medievalish feel in that it's obvious it's not a not a purely medieval movie from a historical accuracy point of view but it had the very gravitas of a medievalish culture i really love that line where you know she first appears to him and she's like you know you know what's you know basically my lady what's wrong right how can i help you and he goes like to, to, to touch her and she's like why, why would you why would you try to touch me why would you what's do that you? what's wrong with you what kind of a night dog <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I also like how in this scene where he jumps into what looks like a shallow bog, he's suddenly in a limitless, the, the complete expanse of the ocean, effectively. And for a long time, there is no up, down, there, there is no end to this water. He's literally in over his head. Absolutely. 
Hey, I'll, ooh, you tied it there. Man, you tied that together really well. Yeah, I like it. And then, of course, after that, he finally makes his way. Oh, he, the fox shows up again. I don't. They talk about the fox in the poem. I don't really know what the, what they were used of the fox in this one. It took a long time for the fox to talk, and then when he finally talked, he didn't say much. And he was very disappointedly not voiced by Yilvin. Yeah, <laughs> it did not say ring, 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 ring. But it was. Yeah, yeah, I still don't get the fox. I, he talks about in the poem, you know, basically, you know, they talk about these things in, in, in great detail, detail, except for this one, there's like this one section where he's like, he overclimbed, many a cliff he overclimbed in strange countries, he was far away from his friends, and he was lonely, uh, he, you know, he, there are many marvels in the mountains that he found were too tedious to tell the tent, you know, it's like, Sometimes he warred with serpents and with wolves and sometimes with savages and with bulls and bears and boars. The giants assailed him from the high, you know, and he fought them. And it's like, it's, it's like, they sort of gloss over all that in the phone. They, they, they do add the giants in. Uh, although was that before or after the weird mushrooms? No, that the mushroom thing came fairly late uh it he definitely encountered the fox a couple times before that you know it's one thing the fox reminded me of and maybe i'm stretching here and putting things together that weren't intended but the fox at least for a long time was kind of this figure that you glanced at in the woods and kind of seemed to be an indicator of like the right and wrong direction and like when he didn't follow the fox he got waylaid by the bandits when he did follow the fox he got to places that belonged and it reminded me of kind of like a uh, helpful will-o'-the-wisp concept in that it was more of a guide, like a spirit guide, I guess. I don't know if that was intended, but I felt that's what I felt from it, like a very spirit guide thing. And he went into disaster when he ignored it. and He seemed to have progressed on his quest when he followed it. And then at some point near the end, when he accepted the, the idea of this fox, they kind of, then they started to journey together. I I I still kind of get that sort of, the fox was his mother sort of nanny camming him. I mean, if if it's a spirit guide and she's a witch, there's no reason that those both couldn't rely. Those could be the same thing. Like she could have literally sent the fox to make sure he succeeded. Because if the whole purpose was to get this layabout who's still living in mama's basement off to be a man on his own two feet. And, you know, who's to say she didn't send things out there to make sure he succeeded and that this fox was yet another tool that she was using to guide his quest. I mean, that that tracks just as much as a helpful but completely unrelated spirit animal. So then finally he makes it to the, the, the Lord's house, the Lord and Lady's house, and this is this was the only part of the movie where I got a little disappointed in some of the choices. Uh, and at one point it looks like Dwayne was like wearing a sweatshirt, he did look like like his his wooly wooly sweater. Yeah, it was it was like an ode to or a, a hat tip to like autumn aesthetic. That like just he needed a pumpkin spice latte and his super wooly sweater, and he could go on a walk through the falling leaves in a park with a yeah, and he had a scarf. 
though his cloak had kind of a scarfy thing to the front, like little tails that he could wrap around him. So he, he was he was set with a scarf. I I think they were trying to do something that invoked the feeling of chainmail. Like even though he wasn't in his armor, he was still guarding himself and armored. Oh. But I I don't I, I I didn't like that. I didn't like the ladies' costumes. Those were specifically designed. She had two costumes when she first came in. It was like this bluish green dress, and then later it was this um sort of uh, uh, white netting dress. And neither of them look anything medieval, but they were supposed to be, according to the designer, the blue one was called the lure, and the white one was called the net. So, okay. The, the the blue one was supposed to be sort of drawing him in. The white one was when she when she finally got him, which was what she was wearing during that that scene. Um, oh, all right. Well, I guess that makes so, sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I just didn't like him, and that's my own personal. For a second, was she was the lady the same actress who played Ethel the prostitute? Was yes. that? So it was. I I I didn't go and check, but it looked like the same lady, which I thought was interesting. It reminded me a lot of um, like the Peter Pan movies where the dad character also plays Captain Hook and stuff like that. I just think it would have been better because there was no other character in his life that the Lord of the Manor was also, unless he was and I didn't catch it. But it seemed in, incongruous to have her there. And I get it, like they had this sexual interaction and and she was supposed to tempt him so if she was a magical creature designed to tempt him taking on the form of his you know the the woman he actually likes i mean i got all of that but i just thought it was strange that she was some character hearkened in his life and he wasn't that kind of it made me think of like why why was she one thing and he wasn't because if they were a pair they're a duo meant to ensnare travelers unless Unless there was conflict between the lady and the lord that was just deeper than I had time to unpack while I was watching the movie. But you're, I think this was the weakest part of the movie for me, was this particular exchange where I remember the gifts being more well-described and exchanged in the poem. Again, having read it so long ago, I remember the, the exchange of gifts and his then like refusal of the last one to be like a really big thing, and here it didn't feel like they built up to that very well. Yeah, um, in in the poem they stretched out a lot longer, so he was there a number of days, and basically, the first day he comes back in and he gives the gives the host one kiss, and the next day he gets two kisses, and the next day he gets three kisses, and the host is always like, where where do you get where do you give me how are you getting such wonderful gifts in these kisses to give me? And he's like, I can't tell you that, basically. Right, because you don't want to talk about your adultery there, especially your host. Yeah. And then he does take take the belt. But in the movie, he refuses to give it up. So he, he, he does break with the hospitality to keep the belt. It, right? in, the, in the poem, he breaks with the hospitality to keep the belt as well. Okay, so that's that is consistent. It was the poem. The, the poem has been Victorianized to basically paint 
Gwen as you know some very righteous and virtuous knight of the Round Table, where he declines the belt, saying, "I cannot, I cannot take this from you. You know, my heart belongs to someone else." Or he does take it, but then he feels guilty, so he gives the belt back or something like that. In the original poem, it played out almost exactly like it does in the movie, where he keeps the belt, runs off, gets to the knight, and the knight starts to take a swing at him. The green knight starts to take swings at him, and he freaks out, and he's like, no, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And three times, he says, which is again, three times, the Christian Trinity deny denial of Christ, things like that. That's where that plays in. You know, three times he the, the knight goes to take a swing at him and he says, I can't do this until he finally realizes that the the belt, it's the belt that's stopping him. So he takes the belt off uh, and, and says, you know, this was poisoned, has poisoned my virtue or something like that and made me a coward. And he throws it away. And that's when he can accept the blow. And the Green Knight just, you know, basically nicks his nicks the back of his neck gently. Right. So in just make sure we're talking about. So the belt was a gift that he got in the very beginning from his mom. And there's a a little bit of scene where they like work a spell and magical herbs and things into it. And it's supposed to protect him from harm. And so the idea behind the belt I got was that it would make him invulnerable. And this seemed to be to me the emergency break for the fact that Gawain made a stupid decision. That his mom was like, well, crap, now he's going to go die. And that's not going to work for me because I want to be, you know, if we're accepting that this whole thing happened specifically to push Gawain out of the nest and to glorify his mother in in proxy, it makes sense to give him this tool that will make sure that if he, you know, he received, say he received the blow without qualm and the magical protection, it doesn't kill him. Like maybe that would fulfill the fulfill the bargain and he could go on with his great deeds and be alive which uh, the ending is where it really differed strongly from the poem uh, because there was no nick and in fact there was there was no actual explanation as to what really happened except that there was which is interesting so they they've gone through the manor and and now we're at the big ending got to go receive his blow right we're at the end of the movie and in this one, he does what you were talking about, where he's like, okay, I'm ready. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm totally ready. Hold on, no, I'm not. And he, he keeps sort of faking out the Green Knight, who's just just this elemental dude who just wants to take a swing at him. And it doesn't seem to give any indication which that he's going to be, like, he's going to psych him out and give him a small nick, you know? Yeah. It... It, there is that psychological, you know, basically he's picking up the axe and he's like, okay, I'm going to swing the fences now. And it is, here's the thing. I believe that if he had kept the belt on, he would have swung for the fences. Mm-hmm. He really would have, um, you know, gone after him because it's, it's that, it's the idea that bravery without fear of harm isn't really bravery so it's not a true it's not a true virtue courage with no risk of failure isn't i mean is that really courage i guess that's the question that's being asked in in this in this scenario is you're right is courage something that is actually courageous if there's no if there's no risk so what ends up happening is he he goes and he leaves the belt on and then he gets 
is it does he get a vision or is this i and i the hero wasn't sure is i think he gets a vision i don't know if it's like the green knight gives him the vision or if mom magically gives him a vision or if he just realizes this is what would happen but then we get after he finally accepts that it's time to get his head chopped off by the green knight he kind of has this there's this long montage which is effectively the conclusion of the movie is showing what happens when he if he either a it runs away or b so it's not clear whether or not in this montage that the green knight passed him his blow while he wears the belt and thus the wound is kept at bay until he removes the belt or if by removing the belt the the blow that he ran away from happens anyway by magic but there's this long montage where you see him he becomes king and uh essel has a baby that he takes as his own and sort of banishes and you know distances himself from the from essel the his his favorite his his uh i don't know if this if it's fair to call him her his true love this isn't really a love story but obviously a person he cared greatly about enough to have emotional struggles uh, with whether or not they should be together now that he was had become king and like this long story about his kingdom falling to ruin and son dying in battle and eventually you know the the camelot falls and he's there and his family that he is you know he has like some mail order princess bride that ignores him at the very end and everyone leaves him and he finally pulls off the belt and his head falls off and i'm still not sure whether or not that was because he received the blow and the magic held it at bay which is why he always wore the belt no matter what or if by taking off the belt it meant that the blow could happen regardless of whether or not he stayed for it so i kind of i don't know which it was supposed to be I'm sure. i i took it that it i took it that it that he did receive the, the blow without without basically without knowing it and the, and the belt held it at bay what I just, I just think it's strange that the whole montage started with him clearly running away it looks like he decided to not take the blow uh, but then at the end like his head still fell off so then it's it was definitely a foreshadowing of if you don't do the right thing now you're never going to do the right thing and it's it's you never will be while you may have power and wealth you will never be great because the whole, right. whole idea can... go ahead yeah you say because the whole idea behind the story is this path to greatness and whether or not it's something that one does willingly whether it happens to them whether or not they want it to or if it is made by the decisions you know forged by the decisions that one makes so basically by, by the, having the decision of keeping the belt and running away and not facing it but then not actually not even owning up to it because what happens is he gets back to camelot and everyone just assumes that he did it and right. assumes and, that he survived and so he gets all these rewards but when in fact he was actually cowardly and so they're all hollow like he does get he gets to be king but he doesn't get to enjoy the correct bride he gets to have a son but that son dies before he could become a man he gets a kingdom but he loses the kingdom so he gets sort of like the half of everything he's supposed to in a way basically every victory he has is not a true victory and, and it is a very hollow victory so and that's what they're, they're going to that and then of course it snaps back 
And he says, wait. He takes the belt off, throws it away, and says, okay, now I'm ready, and actually faces the task without the safety net. And the Green Knight sits down and just says, you know, basically takes his finger and runs it across his neck and goes, good job, my brave knight. Well, doesn't he say something like, let's, I feel like he said, let's take off your head or something. Let me double check what that last line was, because I'm pretty sure he said, good job, my brave knight. Mm, hold on a second, I gotta go with this, because I'm fairly positive he said something about taking off your head, which makes it less ambiguous as to what happens. Oh, he says, see. now, little knight, off with your head. Exactly. So he says that. So the question, and then it goes to black. And we as the audience are left to wonder, did the Green Knight kill him? And so that his story will be told accurately in that he actually had bravery, but he doesn't get, you know, so the question is, his vision of the future, is that only, is that what he would have gotten if he came back to Camelot no matter what? And so he didn't have a future that was whole. This was the sum total of his story. Or did he have an alternate future? And But he, when the knight says, you know, we're going to take off your head, that sort of makes it sound like he's still going to kill him anyway. Then, so did he just sacrifice himself to have a proper legacy or did the knight not kill him like in the book and he goes you know there's parts of the movie we don't see wherein he does the trick of nicking his neck and psyching him out and once he finally accepted internalized it was you know he had come to peace with with dying i mean we don't know and i i personally don't like endings where it's like oh the audience can decide i I get it. It's an artistic choice, but it always sort of feels like a cop-out. Like, you're telling me a story. Tell I took the, the ending when he sat down and said that and ran his finger under his under his chin like that. That it was basically, he was, he was saying good job for finally doing the right thing. Finally living up to his potential. And, you know, it that, that was the, the finger across his neck was the blow he was giving him. Because it plays back into what they kept saying was, it's just a game. Okay. So it was then, okay, I can see that. Is it, was it the Green Knight just sort of laughing at him for taking this all so seriously? Basically. And that, that he was like, that's how I took off your head, just by like making you go through hell for a month. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see that. I, I definitely accept that as an ending. But I wish, that's the one place that I wish the filmmakers would just make a decision like tell me how you want the story to end because you told me the whole story already i'm here on a journey you're taking anyway, I, it's just my personal philosophy on film is that or telling stories in general like writing books and things it's you're you're taking someone on a journey and they are surrendering their imagination to you for you know, they're outsourcing their own ability to entertain themselves to somebody else for an hour and you're know, like finish story for me please otherwise if i was just going to make up my own stories or or go daydream like then i could just go daydream but i i gave you a part of like a corner of my life for a couple hours i finished the job i don't know i just it, that concept of the ambiguous ending is always bothered and so i do hold it against this movie on principle despite the fact that i really enjoyed pretty much 90 percent of it i actually like the ending i thought i thought they did a, did a very well a very good job with it i thought it sort of kept in spirit of the poem, even though it didn't have the the axe giving him the nick on the on the neck. 
it, it kept in that spirit of the knight was, you know, uh, re- rewarding his bravery, basically. Because this was all done done as a story to, to give him, you know, to give him a story to tell at the round table. They, they asked about story, you know, in the beginning of the movie, Arthur asked him for his stories, and he's like, I don't have any. But he, you could have achieved the same thing without letting people argue over whether or not he was actually dead. And I art house film, sorry. I know, I know, I know. I know, I know there's, there's the whole like, oh well, that it's an artistic choice, but I don't know. I know, I know that there are, are, there are directors who like want their audience to discuss their movie, movie and it creates. Then we, we do podcasts about it, and they get more sales from their DVDs. And, and I just, uh, it's just uh, as a trope, the ambiguous ending. I just struggle with it, and so I don't even really hold it against the director or the writers because it's it is a common trope with what like you said there's there's valid reasons why people would tell a story this way but i just don't all right so we need to wrap this up because we are running almost as long as the movie now oh my goodness well yeah <laughs> let's give it let's so, give this movie a grade okay like do we want to do like stars or like schoolhouse grade let's do a schoolhouse grade schoolhouse grade okay i give it a a minus because I hate the ending and the the thing about the I think the very they struggled to get through the ending where the the three trial or the the Lord and the Lady and the kisses and the gifts and all that I think that fell a little flat for me. However, the fact that it evoked that really old school scary magic, free D and D style magic that it had a very medievally feel to the culture. Not just like the material culture, uh, material culture was on point enough that in a fairy tale it was acceptable and didn't go full Lord of the Rings fairy tale where it just it was medievally inspired. It had a very strong medieval feel and the culture and the characters and the way they interacted had that gut feeling of very coming from a medieval culture all told. And obviously it was it was we didn't really touch on it much, but the cinematography was amazing. Cinematography was amazing. Just the the, the the ability to make people feel and the vistas and every, you know, the whole idea of every scene is its own picture. Like, everything in that movie was just gorgeous to look at. The sound design was really good. So, we I had a couple quibbles near the end. Endings are the hardest part of most movies. I give it an A-. minus. I'm going to give it a B plus. Uh, I, I really did like it. I... Most of the costumes I actually really liked as well, but when it got to the Lord's house, I they, they lost me with the, with the with the Lord's wife's costumes, and oh, we didn't even talk about the weird old lady that was just following her around everywhere. I yet again, that was, I, yep. that was so that was, maybe that was another Morgana thing, but it was that was so unexplained that I just it almost like didn't matter. It was as if she wasn't there, like because it didn't never paid off. And again, that goes back to. The situation at the chapter of this story at the Lord's house was the weakest and and least least sensible, and while still again maintaining the deliberateness, as you said in the beginning, the movie was very deliberate. But I think that made the least amount of sense, in, in as much as a lot of the movie didn't make sense on purpose. That one didn't make sense just because it didn't make sense. It so that, that's what it, yeah. the whole Lord's house drops into a B plus for me. I will say though that storytelling wise this is probably the most medieval in style story of a movie i have ever seen i would agree with that absolutely 
it's while yeah some of the material culture you know it didn't quite look right it was very this the story itself so a uh, a minus from ari b plus from me that's still a pretty good grade i stay if you haven't seen it you really should it's and i i don't know if it still is but i mean it's streaming for like five five four five dollars at least maybe there was a deal on it for a little while because we went last night watched uh free city free guy the ryan reynolds movie and that that cost like seven dollars on amazon and green knight was objectively a much better movie now I, not that this is a free guy review, but like that was a fantastic movie that made me laugh until my sides hurt. It was a good movie, but it, it, Green Knight was a, it, like you said, art house. It was a, it was a piece of art movie, not just like an entertaining adventure comedy movie. It was, it was a viewing experience. If anything, it was just a beautiful movie. It was a fantastically gorgeous movie, and so I would suggest you go watch it. It's it's worth watching, and there's something to be said for the more of us who watch it, and you know we spend money on Green Knight and not on Last Duel. Maybe they'll start making better medieval movies. Yeah. Yeah. So next, the last duel will probably be the next movie we talk about. Uh, when uh, a chance to see that. If someone gives it to me for free, I guess. Yeah, exactly. When it streams, so, we'll review it. But <laughs> uh, we're gonna ask you folks to stay with us for a couple more minutes here because we want to talk about something else really quick. Ari and I are proud to announce that we're going to be launching the first annual How to Medieval Best of the Best competition. Mm-hmm. This will be a populist-inspired medieval reenactor, medieval content, kind of our sector of the world that doesn't get acknowledged by the Webbies and the YouTube Awards and, and industry awards. Like, the people who do our style of fun living history reenactment in the medieval corner of the world and is going to be audience driven so you guys get to choose and well who it is that is the best at what they do in each of these categories as we design yeah we're going to set up a number of categories and we'll be probably first it'll be a, a write-in so you can write in who your favorite reenactor is for one of those categories and then maybe we can sort of collate those responses and have another actual voting round or something once we get a, a number of names put together yeah nomin a nomination period in the beginning like is i think what you're trying to say and when we're talking about categories we're talking about like you know individual reenactor of certain time periods individual reenactors of certain statuses because i new new reenactor uh lifetime achievement kind of thing group impressions but i also have to acknowledge that you know, there's something flamboyant and spectacular about a noble impression of the late 15th century that just side by side one looks so much prettier. It, you know, you don't want to necessarily be dazzled by the ostentatiousness of one. So it's important to acknowledge like really good commoner impressions as well. And so we're going to have categories that really cut at the heart of the things that we do and the variations that we see in our experience and the people who excel at those individual categories. So keep an eye out on our uh, Facebook page. We'll have a link uh, that's going to go up so you can do your write-ins. We're hopefully going to, what we'll probably do is through November, we'll do the nominations. And then sometime in December, we'll do the vote. And then we'll announce the winners after the first of the, the first of the new year. And assuming that we get the turnout that we are expecting that you guys will will give us based on the amount that you have helped us out in the past, I hope to see this being an annual thing. Yeah, it'd be great to have an annual thing because I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a best of the best reenactor. 
Not yet, anyway. Yeah. That's why we're innovators. <laughs> and if you like innovation, <laughs> then go and give us five stars on whatever you listen to us on. It helps us beat that nasty, nasty algorithm so we can become the best of the best. That's true. And don't forget to follow us on uh, social media, Facebook. Um, Facebook, and you can su- d- subscribe direct through Anchor. Also know that through our email address, howtomedieval at gmail.com, that's T-W-O, you can send us in any requests you want. And if you send us a video, or sorry, a audio file, then we will play it on the show. You can have a byline in the show, ask us a question. We'll respond to that question on a full episode or a mini episode. You just go ahead and send that on in to us. I also want to thank Paul Butler for letting us use his music as part of our intro. I been meaning to say that before our goodbyes instead of after so no one cuts out and forgets who it is that has graciously allowed us to use some medievally sounding stuff at the beginning of our show thank you paul all right thank you so much for listening we'll catch you next time folks bye <laughs>